1: The Bible's pretty straightforward. We are held accountable for our sin. We're held responsible. But God's grace tends to overarch that, as we'll see next, here on today's edition of Abounding Grace. Join us. We could title today's program, Grace and Responsibility, and simply put, that's what we see here in Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 29. Hi there, and again, welcome. This is Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner, who continues our journey through Romans, focusing in today on the responsibility we have for our sin and God's grace and love that deals with it in His way a sufficient way that you and I could never accomplish. For the details, let's catch up with Pastor Gary Wagner here on today's broadcast of Abounding Grace.
2: Grace and responsibility. The Lord has given us such amazing grace. He has called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. He laid all of our filth upon the back of His Son, our Lord Jesus, who loves us and gave Himself for us. He has put our feet on the path to His eternal kingdom. And if you are a Christian, you are a disciple of the Lord Jesus, and your road may be circuitous to our weak faith. But understand, it is pointing directly toward God's celestial eternal city, where God will be your light, your glory. And your joy forever. And along that path, he walks with us. These are all glorious blessings. But they are just a few of the privileges that our Heavenly Father gives to us as Christians. A few of the blessings that our Lord Jesus purchased for us with his own blood. And we ought to confess with Moses today. Or he says in Deuteronomy thirty-three twenty-nine, Happy, happy art thou, O Israel, who is like unto thee, a people saved by the Lord. Oh, we have enormous blessings. Now, these blessings are not ours, of course, because we are better than anyone else. In fact, apart from God's grace, we are as bad as and many times worse than the people of this world. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4-7. Who makes you to differ? It is God's grace. If there is any good in us, God has done it, not we. Now, when we hear of these graces and these privileges, and we are going to look at some of the privileges the Jews had today... But when we look at these privileges, they should prick our hearts when we remember who we were and how far we had fallen short of God's glory and how much we were enemies of the cross and the gospel of our Savior. We should have joy when we hear that we are the favored of God. Beloved, we are the favored of God. He loves us. He knows every heart in here who loves him. He knows every burden, every sorrow, every tear. He is with us in ways we cannot even imagine. He sustains us, encourages us, walks with us. We ought to be the most thankful and joyful people and devote ourselves to God's service. But what happens if we don't receive grace in this way? I mean, we can hear about all these privileges this afternoon and just sleep away. Yeah, I've heard all about these before. I've been in church for 30 years, and I probably heard about this 500 times. Well, Paul warned the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians six one, saying, We then, as workers together with him, beseech you also that you receive not the grace of God in vain. Now, it's not just the Corinthians who were guilty of this. It's not just the Jews, as we will see today, who were guilty of this. But we can certainly become guilty of this as well. In fact, this is the worst crime any man can commit. It's not murder. It's not adultery. The worst crime is to know the gospel and to not humble our hearts and lead us to give ourselves to God. That is the worst crime any man can ever commit. The deepest hell is not reserved for people like Adolf Hitler. The deepest hell is reserved for those who had the gospel and were not joyful and were not humble and didn't give themselves to the Lord and thus proved that they were unthankful sons. You know, God's grace has its responsibilities. Grace, God's kindness to us in Jesus is not a blank check to live like we want. A lot of people today would say, grace, grace, grace. It's even written on my t-shirt, so now I can fly to heaven on the wings of rebellion and pride and live like I want. Do you know what grace does when we savingly receive it in our heart? Grace binds our hearts to God with thankfulness and humility and love. Grace makes us harder on ourselves then we are on others. Now, that doesn't mean we tolerate sin in others. We are zealous for God's honor and God's glory. Pluralism and universal tolerance is an insult, actually, to the majesty of God. And no Christian can maintain that philosophy. But grace brings real light into our souls. And it teaches us to be humble before our God. Turn with me to Ephesians 4:1 and see what Paul says we're supposed to do when we hear about God's glorious grace. In chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians, Paul has just been rehearsing many of these truths and he says in verse 1 of chapter 4 I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. Walk worthy. Now understand, his point here is not that we will ever be worthy. There is no thought here of measuring up to what God has done. No, but since God has dealt so kindly with us, We ought to forever after, if we are humbled by His grace, devote ourselves to pleasing Him. You see, grace doesn't say, hey, sin a little bit, and I'll be forgiven later. Grace says, well, walk more closely with the God of mercy. Grace doesn't say, hey, I'm forgiven, so I can live like I want to, and I can always be forgiven later. Grace says, deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. Grace doesn't say, look at me. Grace says, glorify the God of mercy and of love and kindness to his people. Beloved, grace is a precious gift. It is a treasure. And we are not to receive it in vain. Oh, but the Jews did. Look at Romans 2, verse 17. Now, Paul doesn't belittle these privileges here that he speaks of, because these are gifts. These were tremendous privileges that the Jews had, but now they abused them, and they received God's grace in vain. But they were enormous privileges. Notice he says, Behold, thou art called a Jew. Boy, what a long an illustrious lineage that was. Abraham, and David. I mean, what an honor to be a Jew. But yet what happened? That became their boast to be a Jew. You know, sometimes we're tempted to do the same thing if our daddy or our granddaddy were preachers. Or if we live in a family where there are several generations of believers, we can be tempted to trust that heritage rather than to make the faith of that line our own faith. I actually had someone tell me that his granddaddy was a pastor of a Presbyterian church and he knew all about this stuff, but he hadn't stepped into a church for 25 years Yet he considered himself a Christian. Beloved, the faith of our fathers will not save us unless it is our faith and our passion. Notice he says also, and rest in the law. That, of course, is a good thing. Paul doesn't state this negatively. This is positive. Every true believer has got to be convicted of Psalm 119.96, which says, I have seen an end of all perfection. Thy commandment is exceeding broad. This is a common confession of every godly man and woman. God's law has everything we need in it for a devout and holy life. But do you know what happened? The Jews silenced the living voice of the law. And it then became a sterile, ethical system. It no longer searched them. It became a club to bludgeon others. But we can rest in God's word and be persuaded that everything we need is in Scripture. Now, that's a good thing. Everything we need is in the Scriptures. And yet... Our hearts have to stay soft and pliable to what God has said in his word. And the only way they can do that is if we stay humbled by God's grace. Notice again what Paul says there in verse 17. And make us thy boast of God. The Jews, oh, we know God. And yes, it's a privilege. And yet what happened? They forgot who God was. He's not the God of ceremonies and traditions. He had already said a long time ago, listen, Lebanon is insufficient to burn, meaning all of the wood of the cedars of Lebanon. You could stoke all of that wood with fire and offer a thousand bullocks, and it is not sufficient. It is a shadow that points to my son, he said. But my glory is in his sacrifice, not burnt offerings. Solomon said at the dedication of the temple, Do you think this temple contains our God? When the Shekinah glory entered the temple, Solomon said, The heaven of heavens cannot contain you. Heaven is your throne. The earth is your footstool. Just like they did with the law. They tended to put God in their little religious box, forgetting that he was the Holy One of Israel who walked among them. Verse 18, and knew his will. Remember, these were the Jewish privileges, and what a privilege. Michael 6.18 said, What does the Lord require of you but to walk humbly with him and to keep his commandments? To know God's will, Robert Lee said. The most important thing in all of life is to know God's will and to do it. Oh, what a privilege to know God's will. And yet, as the questions will come in verse 22 and following, do we do it? Do we do it? You young people. You need to ask yourself a question, and of course, you adults also, but especially you young people who are born into this. You know, there's a lot of thinking today. If someone is born into something, will it just become an old habit to them? Well, the problem is not what they are born into. The problem with, is with an ungrateful heart that is not melted Before God's goodness and I know what is said you can't put an old man's head on a young man's shoulders but young people you should realize here that if God has given me his truth and taught me his will from my youngest days it is as if he put in my hand the key to heaven already he has been kind to me He has been faithful to me. I'm going to devote myself to his honor. I'm going to please him. I'm going to serve him. I'm going to love him because my God has been so good to me. And if you are older and you have heard of God's word even longer, how much more should this be the passion of your life for the living God to have taught me his will? And it says, And approve of the things that are more excellent being instructed out of the law. Interesting little verb here. This could mean that they knew what were the most important things, the best things to do in life. But I think there is something more stated here. That they were able to make divisions and moral distinctions. The verb in Greek here implies the ability to distinguish things. In other words, the law taught them moral distinctions. This is right. This is wrong. This is wise. This is foolish. The Lord told the Pharisees in Matthew 23, and he's getting on them big time. And he says, woe unto you, you hypocrites. You tithe myrrh, cumin, mint, but you neglect Mercy and righteousness. His next words were, These you ought to have done and not leave the other undone. By the way, that should forever do away with the idea that serving God is just, woohoo, I'm just a whirling dervis, follow the Spirit, follow your feelings. No, Jesus looked at these men and said, You should have tithed on your mint plants. And when Jesus, beloved, says should, everyone must keep silent before him and follow his command. There's no room within the Christian faith or for grace to say, Oh, we can just be lackadaisical at times, can't we? No, the more we appreciate grace the more we should be concerned about meticulous obedience to God with all of the details of His Word. Because His Word teaches us how to make moral distinctions, how to do things that are pleasing to His will. This is not a negative, but I realize it is a negative today. It is very rare for the Christian today who says, Do you know what my pleasure is in life? I want to keep God's precepts and His testimonies. I want to obey the details of God's word. It's looked down on today. It's seen as legalism. This is not legalism. Legalism is when we make it up as we go. Legalism is the mantra follow your feelings. Legalism is to follow the Holy Spirit and then adding things that God has nowhere commanded in His Word or making our scruples the level of first principles in the law. But that, of course, is not godly. What is godly is when we take God's Word seriously and we devote ourselves to it and approve the things that are most excellent This is a tremendous privilege. The Jews had become masters at this except for one thing. They took all of their study into God's law and all of their conclusions and all of the intertwining connections and they put them into a box. And they forgot it was the sword of the law that cuts to reveal my need of God and of his mercy. Oh, No, no, no. I have my own ethical system, the Jews said. I've got my paradigm. Everything is in this neat little box. Now, verses 19 and 20 don't require a lot of comment. The Jews were confident that they themselves were guides of the blind and a light unto those who were in the dark. I don't think we should read too much sarcasm here. Maybe there is a tinge of it. But what is Paul saying? What Paul is saying is true. What did God do among the Jewish people that he had not done in the world? He gave them his word. They were able to guide if they just fulfilled the opportunities that they had. They could have been a light unto the world. And in many respects... They were because they brought the Messiah in God's mercy through that remnant and that faithful daughter of Zion. You know, we need to be really careful, though. I'm sure like me, you feel very, uh, I don't know if I would ever say this about myself. And even though we may act that way, because I know a speck of how sinful I am. I'm sure you know a speck of it in your own life. But we have to be really careful when we rightly efface ourselves and say, don't look at me, that we detract from the privilege of God's grace in our lives. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10. Just a little side note here. I'm not going to make a big deal out of this thing today, but... We've got to be very careful about this that when we are speaking of ourselves in a lowly way like we should that we don't diminish the magnificence of God's grace in our lives. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15:9, "For I am the least of the apostles that I am not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. I did all these things when In the past, in Philippians and other places, he spoke of being a persecutor. But look at verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Wow, there is a fine line. Is there not? By the grace of God, I am what I am. Yet I labored more valiantly than all the rest of the apostles. Oh, was Paul being prideful here? No. Why? Because in verse 9, he already told us, I am a wretch. But in verse 10, he comes right back and says, but look what God's grace does in a man. So we need to understand both sides of this. This is a form of spirituality that is nothing really but pride that goes around saying, Oh, woe is me. I am so bad. I'm so evil. Evil things just spew from my mouth. There's nothing good in me. I am as bad as all those people out there in the world. How in the world could God love me? Well, there's a yes and a no there, if you know the Savior Yes, from the standpoint in my flesh dwells no good thing. But on the other thing, on the other hand, I'm not what I was. God's grace makes a difference. So yes, there is good in me. And the Jews could say, we are a light to the world. We are a guide to those who walk in darkness. Verse 20, we are able to instruct the foolish. We can teach babies. Why? Because we have the form of knowledge and of truth in the law. The very best of pagan thought only rose up to the shadowlands. Most commonly, they just had very obscure hints of the truth that were soon lost in their idolatry and their unbelief. But that wasn't the way it was in Israel. There was a light. There was glory. There was the Shekinah. There was the temple. And there was the hope of the Messiah, the very promise that God made in the Garden of Eden, wound its way in God's providence into one group of people on the planet. And they were able to be a light to the nations so that in the reign of David and especially Solomon, they came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of God.